This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. It's uh, great to be with you this morning and really, really always excited to have Rick Courtney on the show. He's been a frequent guest. Um, and uh, Rick, you know, could you remind us, please, about your background and, and why this, this topic is especially important to you? Well, certainly, uh, I'm glad to be back on. I have twin adult daughters who are in their 40s, and uh, one of my daughters has disabilities. So she has had Medicaid through three different coverage groups of Medicaid. People are surprised to find out there's more than one Medicaid, you know. And so there are different coverage groups for different types of and groups of people. She's had SSI, which is the low income and low asset social security program. And she was a younger woman right out of community college. Uh, she's had SSI. And then now she's got social security disability because she worked and paid into social security for a, a time. And now she, because of disability, has social security disability. And because of that, at age 40, I'll say at 41, uh, she has Medicare, just like her 66-year-old dad does. So uh, that's how we got personally involved with special needs planning as the girls got older and we saw the issues of health care, how to pay for therapies and medical things uh, for Melanie. You know, that's how we got involved. And so 30-plus years ago, I started doing special needs planning with other families like ours who had an adult or child with disabilities. And now we do elder law. And of course, people can find out more about us at elderlawms.com is our website. That involves uh, issues that pertain to people who are aging and people with disabilities or special needs. Even children with special needs are included in elder law. So it's, it's housing issues, it's public benefits, it's how to estate plan for those family members and many different things. Well, it's so interesting because we are, after all, all aging. You know, I used to think of elder law as being for other people, and now I'm, I'm moving into it myself. But, um, you know, and, but you know, we're focusing on, on the disability planning and special needs planning, and, and not just in these uncertain times, but beyond. But what types of legal decisions regarding disability should listeners be thinking about, even in, quote, normal times? Right. And during this COVID uh isolation period. A lot of people have experienced my mom's 90. She's in a personal care home near us, but she got locked down in there. And a lot of families are familiar with that dynamic where their uh, senior adult uh, family members got isolated from them. And that's been hard. How do they navigate that isolation and the issues that come along with that um, and help those people get along? But um, in any in any time uh, before this uh, pandemic came, we were encouraging people to plan because I don't know when something might help, might come along for me and hurt my ability to manage things for myself. I may need assistance with things because of a head injury in an accident or dementia or some other illness or injury. So it's important for all of us to plan uh, for disability, for how my affairs, financial and medical care and all those things will be handled in a smooth transitional way uh, if something happens to me. And particularly if I have a child or a family member that I, with special needs, I need to be doubly focused on how to do that for them as well. 
Rick, you know, we use that term special needs uh, a lot. I, what I, I, is there a good definition of what, what it means to have special needs? Uh, I'll, um, I'll tell you in just a second. I wanted to finish a, a thought that I had right as on the heels of you asking about planning in, in any time, whether it's now or post-COVID or whatever. There is an acrostic that I would encourage people to remember. And this, from your standpoint as a planning attorney and teacher of that to your students uh, as well, you know, I, my firm got a PPP loan, you know, a payroll protection plan to help pay staff and, and people through the lockdown earlier in the spring and early summer. I'm going to suggest PPPP. Everyone should think of the four P's. When you're planning for your own potential disability or incapacity or for someone else, it's people, place, paper, and professional guidance. Think of who needs to be involved. Who would you appoint to handle things for you or for your child if you weren't there and able to handle those things? What place would you want them to be? Where do you want things to happen or your living arrangements that you would want to be involved. Make those expressed in somewhere. Paper is the documents that we'll talk some more about, you know, in special needs documents, powers of attorney, healthcare directives, trust, that sort of thing. And then professional help. This is not a DIY project, you know, <laughs> that's Wednesday. <laughs> the DIY show is on Wednesday, okay? Uh, this is a, not a do-it-yourself thing. Legal planning should get some professional guidance so the things you want to happen are put into your plan so uh, you'll achieve your goals. You ask about what a disability is, there are two types of disabilities. There are developmental disabilities. My, my daughter has cerebral palsy. That's a developmental disability. It's part of her uh, natural development. She had that condition from birth, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, muscular dystrophy. There are others, autism, there's a, you know, uh, and Down syndrome are all developmental disabilities. They come as part of an, a developmental process. Then there are acquired disabilities, stroke, head injury. Uh, those things are acquired disabilities. So uh, traumatic brain injury. So those things are uh, also caused disabilities and inability to manage affairs by that person, you know, in the same way a developmental disability can. So uh, we're talking a lot with families that have either one of those. You know, and I talk a lot with attorneys who are representing clients who've had an acquired disability through a, mo a motor vehicle accident or a medical malpractice issue and uh, how to plan for their future and how to get all the resources that are available to them to pay for care needs uh, in light of that disability. So uh, the disabilities affect your ability to manage your financial or personal affairs. So that's what we're planning about for folks. Well, you know, we can't, go ahead, please, I'm sorry. I was gonna uh, say we, that, and there's some instruments um, that we can use. Uh, sometimes the state even gets involved in it. And you know, we talk about healthcare decision-making. If I need someone to step in and make decisions about my health care. And again, people who've gone to the hospital during this coronavirus, you've seen on TV uh, stories about they weren't able to make their own decisions or communicate with their providers because they were on, in, on respirators or something. Who is going to make medical decisions about their care and treatment? 
I need to make sure those decisions have, that I've made those decisions for myself. And so I encourage everybody to think about that, get it down on paper, think through the people that you want to involve, get their agreement to do those things. And then you've got a plan in place if that should happen. In Mississippi, we have uh, things like the health care directive, you know, that we use a health care power of attorney. I looked at one from another state yesterday. A lady moved in from another state and wondered if her health care power of attorney and her general durable power of attorney and will were all still valid here. And I was pleased to tell her, yes, they are still valid here because they were done implemented the same way, signed with the same notaries and things there that we use here. So um, there may not be a need to change things. Um, and also we have something that's uh, not, it's for people who didn't get the planning done. It's a healthcare surrogate law. And we have, I've had two clients in the last two weeks, which is a little bit more than usual, come in and say, look, mom or dad or my brother who's got a disability, I need to make changes for him. Mom just passed away, and I'm the one who's now taking care of him. Uh, he didn't have, he was not able to sign a health care power of attorney. How can I make health care decisions for him? In that situation, I informed the sister that our state writes basically a health care power of attorney for her, um, for him. Uh, we call it the health care surrogate law. It says when there's nobody that he had never put in writing any designation of a person to make health care decisions for him, uh, a family member who's in a certain priority of relationship to him could do that by law. First, it's his spouse. Well, he wasn't married. With no spouse, it's a parent. Well, he didn't have a parent. Uh, or adult child. He didn't have an adult child. Then it's his parent. And he didn't have a surviving parent after his mom passed away. Then it's a sibling. Well, there you go. Sister is the top of the list for him. So we prepared a health care declaration that just mimics the statute. And she signed it saying, I am his sister, I am the high, there's no one else of a higher priority. I'm willing to make health care treatment decisions for him. She signed it, had it notarized, and took it back to the to the doctor's office, and they said, okay, we'll now talk to you. So there are some things like that people aren't aware of, and we can help with information about those. But we much prefer doing the planning through your own documents and your own thought process and your own people. That's really a better plan for anyone. Hang on. We are discussing discussing special needs law with our guest, Richard Courtney. If you, we have any attorneys listening, I've got some special information for you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. The original Southern Remedy is available as a podcast. Subscribe using your favorite podcasting app. You can email a question to remedy at mpbonline.org. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. This is In Legal Terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. For any lawyers who might be listening to the show, and we know that you do, our guest, Richard Courtney, has a book available for purchase at the Shop American Bar Association website. That may not get as much traffic as Amazon, but anyway, it's a lawyer's guide to working with special needs clients. Because this morning, we're taking your questions about special needs law because it's special needs law month. Let's go to Amy, who has called in from North Mississippi. Amy, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? First of all, good morning, and thank you for taking my call. Um, I have... um we were my husband and I were foster parents, and we adopted um, a special needs child. And you know, we get um, until he's eighteen, we get Medicaid through the state for him for health insurance. Is there anything that has changed? He's fifteen now. Is there anything that has changed that? he would be able to um, continue to get that. And also, the second question, and I'll hop off, the second question is, is there a certain age that we need to begin to prepare, um, you know, like we have life insurance and, uh, you know, as far as his needs past, you know, we don't know what tomorrow holds. And so, you know, taking care of him once, you know, we are gone. Um, and who will do that. So anyway, I'll hop off and let you guys answer. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, Amy. This is Rick. Uh, I'm not intimately familiar without looking back in the Medicaid policies about their coverage group for foster children, but uh, I would think that he's, there's nothing new that I can think of uh, for his coverage right now. Excuse me, I have a frog there. Um, once he turns 18, he would probably become eligible for SSI under federal Social Security guidelines. He becomes an adult for federal purposes at age 18, even though 21 is the age of adulthood in Mississippi. So at age 18, Social Security quits looking at the household income and assets, and they look just to see if he has more than $2,000 of assets in his name. If he doesn't, he could qualify possibly for SSI, which automatically brings Medicaid medical insurance in Mississippi. So a lot of our children who are on a disabled child program under Medicaid until they're 18, they switch over to SSI at age 18. And I would think you might want to look into that. Um, And if need, you know, you had more questions about his eligibility under the current program, we can look that up if there's some reason you need to know more about that. As to your question, how to provide for future needs in the event something happens to you, uh, we always say if and when. For me, it's not if. I know it's a when. It's something going to happen to me at some point. Uh, I had a lady yesterday who called, and we're working with her. She said, I have 
a uh, granddaughter and she has special needs and I want to make sure the insurance policies that I have will go to her and not knock her off of Medicaid or SSI. So we're setting up a special needs trust for her, for the grandmother. And that's a trust that says, I'm going to set this trust up. It'll be empty for right now, but at some point I can put assets in it. I can name it as the beneficiary of insurance policies. I can name in my will that this child's assets go into that trust. And uh, that it's a vessel to hold assets, property and money for that person with a disability in a way that won't disqualify them for Medicaid or SSI benefits. So I would think that's what you need to look at doing as part of your planning, your estate planning, is get a special needs trust in place for your uh, child, foster child, and or adopted, I'm sorry, you may have said adopted child. Uh, and uh, So um, I would say you'd want to get a trust in place that you could then tell anyone, and we provide a family letter when we do those trusts for folks. Here's a letter to send to all the members of your family that says, we now have a trust. If you want to give Johnny something, write the check not to Johnny Smith, but to the Johnny Smith Special Needs Trust. Give it to us. We will put it in the bank. It will be in his trust. It will not knock him off of SSI or Medicaid. And uh, also, if you want, if any family members want to name that name him to get assets through their wills or their insurance policies, they can name the trust instead. And it is there to stand in his shoes to hold money and assets. So I hope that kind of gives you a starting point to move forward, Amy. Rick, that's great. And, uh, and thank you, Amy, for that question. And what, I mean, there, there are kind of limits on what you can use a special needs trust for the kinds of expenses it can pay. <laughs> to protect that person from being kicked out of SSI and Medicaid. So what kind of expenses can you use the special needs trust for? Yeah, and a special needs trust is, um, it doesn't have to have that name on it. What makes a trust a, quote, special needs trust is, number one, the trustee who's going to hold those assets has discretion about whether to spend them and for what. The, the beneficiary with the disability can't dictate how the money is spent from the trust. That's one thing. And then under Social Security policies, the trust has to have what's called a spendthrift clause in it that says the beneficiary can't pledge or assign the rights to anything in the trust. So if Johnny is an adult with uh, autism and he goes out and he gets a gambling debt, he can't give an IOU from the trust to pay his gambling debt because the trust says he can't do it. The spendthrift clause says he can't pledge those assets. Those are the two things that make a trust a, quote, special needs trust and for all intents and purposes. Now, for someone on SSI uh, where there is a trust, if it is set up with money and assets of other people, like I've got, a, we have a trust for our daughter, we're going to put assets in it either now or at our deaths. Uh, it won't be her money going into that trust. It will say the trustee is to spend money for whatever she needs during her lifetime that's not covered by some other program like Medicaid to pay for medical. So if there are medical things Medicaid doesn't cover, the trust can pay for those. Uh, certainly therapies, recreation, transportation, educational resources, furniture, clothing, all those things are valid expenses for from a special needs trust. 
uh, that it can spend money for for that person with a disability. There's another type of special needs trust. If a person, let's say someone you know, a niece or nephew has just inherited some money because their parent died and and this niece or nephew is on SSI or Medicaid, well, they can take their own assets, their own money, and put it in a special needs trust that is described in federal law. And it has to say the trust can hold assets, their, their money, in a way that they can keep their Medicaid and their SSI payments. But that trust has to say when the person with the disability passes away, Medicaid is first in line to get repaid from that trust, whatever medical cost Medicaid has paid. So that's a self-funded special needs trust. And the other one is the third party or the estate planning trust. That's the two types of special needs trust. One has a Medicaid payback, the other one doesn't. So the kind that Amy was talking about for her child, you know, would not have a payback to Medicaid. It can go to other charities or people or family members when that child dies. Um, But what, can a special needs trust pay for? Generally, the rules are under SSI and Medicaid, the trust can't give that uh, beneficiary cash. If as a trustee, I give them $100, that's just going to knock $100 off of their next SSI payment. It's not going to net them any benefit. And if I give them more than $783, that's the maximum SSI payment. So I could wipe out their SSI and their Medicaid with cash from the trust. Second rule is the trust, if the trust pays for food or shelter, and this is generally Medicaid rule too, if it pays for their rent or mortgage where they live, their electricity, gas, water, property taxes where they live, those are shelter expenses. If the trust pays for that person's food or shelter, there will be a reduction of their SSI check, but no more than one-third of the benefit amount. So they can still keep some SSI, and if they have any SSI in Mississippi, you keep Medicaid as insurance. Um, so we have to, and there's some little bit different tweaks on that second rule for state Medicaid programs like the Disabled Child at Home program. So we have to be careful about uh, what we spend those for. But otherwise, the trust can pay for cell phones, cell phone communications, uh, internet access that the uh, people with disabilities need to stay connected. Like I said, recreation, entertainment, transportation, clothing, food, I mean, clothing and furniture and things that they need. So uh, a wide range of things that a special needs trust can do for that beneficiary with a disability. I guess with, uh, as in life, whenever you enter a new realm, you need to become an expert in that realm. And if it doesn't happen now, it might happen at some point. So I'm glad that we'll have this information available for anyone to pick up in the future. We're talking with attorney Richard Courtney about special needs law. If you are enjoying this show, I've got a suggestion for another podcast you might like next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast, lots of different podcasting platforms. You download one to your phone, touch the plus or something that takes you to the page to search for podcast, type in In Legal Terms, it'll bring us up, and then you can click on us and listen to all of our shows. This morning, we're taking your questions concerning special needs law with our guest, Richard Courtney, from Courtney Elder Law Associates. On September 1st of 2020, Sean Barrett, a former U.S. attorney, now a private attorney with the ADA Group, was a guest on In Legal Terms to talk about the Americans with Disability Act. We hope you'll find that podcast for some additional information. Well, Rick, we talked about uh, special needs trust, and, and they uh, someone should come to you or an attorney to have a special needs trust on. What's an ABLE account? An ABLE account is uh, was established at the end of 2014. It was signed into law. It's a federal law, and it's a tax law. It sets up under Section 529A of the Internal Revenue Code, an account for a person with a disability. People may have heard of 529 college savings plans. Well, that's plans where a a parent or an aunt or uncle can set up a college fund for a child or niece or nephew or some other family member to use for education expenses when that person gets to the education uh, part of their life. Uh, ABLE accounts are set up on a similar platform. You can't go to a bank and set up an ABLE account. It is set up through the state. Each state administers their ABLE program in a different way. But you can set up an account for uh, an individual with a disability. So the the features of that account are a person with a disability that began before age 26 There is that limitation. At first, it was no limit on the age when the law was passed in Congress, but they they had to score it. You know, they do that budget office scoring thing, and it was going to cost $20 billion over the next 10 years in in extra SSI and Medicaid money that would be spent for people. So they said, well, that's too much. We can't find other ways to pay for it in the budget. So they put this age 26 limit in it. And it dropped the cost to $2 billion, and that's basically the committee's coffee budget. You know, So they said, we can do that. And so the, it has to be a disability that began before age 26. The person has to have either had that disability determined by SS, Social Security or Medicaid, or they can self-certify that they meet the disability criteria with medical information which is different from the other programs, Social Security and Medicaid program. There can only be one account for the individual with a disability. So if divorced parents each want to set up an ABLE account, the first one that gets set up is going to be the one that qualifies. The other one will not. The account can only have up to $15,000 per year contributed to it. 
and that's from all sources. So if you don't know what other people are putting in Johnny's ABLE account, you know, it could get overfunded during a year. As long as the account balance stays below $100,000, it will not be counted as part of the beneficiary's assets for SSI purposes. SSI allows a person to have $2,000 of countable money. Well, money in an ABLE account is not going to count. So that's the big benefit of this. It allows a person with disability to have at their access more money than the $2,000 to spend for things that they can control and want to do. Uh, as long as the account stays under $235,000, that's Mississippi's 529 college savings plan limit on how much can be in an account, the ABLE account uses that same limit. So as long as it stays below $235,000, it will not count as assets for Medicaid programs. So a person might lose SSI as their account grows over the years. And at only $15,000 per year, we're way, you know, can't get there yet for anybody. But with growth and, uh, a pre and it can be invested, there can be uh, investments in this account. And there is a checking account, just a non-interest bearing checking account. The person with the disability is the one who controls this account. So if it is a young adult with a disability, they are able to have this money and be able to spend it as they choose, which is good for financial training and autonomy. A person with a disability has some assets that they can control and it makes them feel more in control of financial things in their life. And so uh, the ABLE account is, is tax law and it, it limited to 15,000 per person. Um, one account per beneficiary um, and uh, under 20, a disability that began before age 26. And it can be spent for qualified disability expenses. That's a broad range of things that are described. And people can find out more about Mississippi's ABLE account. I'm on the ABLE board in Mississippi. Uh, and you can go to www.mississippiable.com, all spelled out, one word, mississippiable.com. And it's a very uh, easily navigable website because people with disabilities have to be able to go there. You can learn more about the accounts. You can actually sign up for an ABLE account there at that website. The Department can, of Services administers it. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just want I, so I know that Mississippi kind of came to the table a little later than other states in having an able accounts. Can someone in Mississippi open an able account in Florida with their able accounts, or do you have to use the the Mississippi able account? Yeah, no. Initially, there was a residency requirement that got taken away pretty quickly. Congress removed that, so you can open an able account anywhere now. So. If someone is intending for a young person to save a lot of money over a long time and they say, well, we want to keep Johnny on Medicaid, but we're thinking we're going to accumulate more than 235000 Well, in Ohio, the state limit, 529 limits, 400000 So you could open an account somewhere else. But in Mississippi, uh, a Mississippi taxpayer gets an income tax deduction, a state income tax deduction for money they contribute to an ABLE account. So that's an appeal to use one here in Mississippi, but you can open an account in other states. And as you mentioned, the 529 
for college savings, same thing. If you if you open it in Mississippi and you're a Mississippi resident, you get that same state yeah. tax deduction. So that is, that is a big incentive. So how is ABLE different from a special needs trust? And could you have both? Oh, absolutely, you can have both. And what we do is we draft special needs trusts in our firm to allow the trustee to contribute money annually to an ABLE account for the beneficiary. Because here's some differences. As I mentioned, the ABLE account can only have 15000 per year contributed to it. It's that annual gift tax exclusion amount. Well, there's not a limit on what I could put into a third-party special needs trust for the benefit of my child or my niece or nephew. I could put $100,000. So if I'm a, if I'm a, um, a widowed spouse whose spouse just passed away and left me a $100,000 life insurance and I don't really need that money and I want to put it in an ABLE account, I can't put that in an ABLE account. I could put it in a special needs trust, the whole $100,000. So there's not a limit on contributions. The ABLE account, you don't control the investment of the money. You do to, to an extent. There are several different accounts. There are from conservative to aggressive investment accounts within there. Plus, there's just a checking account feature. So I can invest it. I cannot, under the law, change the investments more than twice a year. That's the ABLE limit. More than So you can't day trade on an ABLE account. But I can pick the bank or financial institution that I want to be trustee of a special needs trust. So I can be, have a more personal connection with the trustee on a special needs trust. And it can be an individual. If I want to let my child be the, the trustee of my grandchild's special needs trust, I can do that. So that's a difference with the ABLE. If I put money in a special needs trust for a person in my family with a disability, that trust, as we mentioned earlier in the show, I can say at when the beneficiary dies, when that person with a disability dies and there's money still left in their trust, that remainder money can go to some other family members or to charities or whoever I want to say it goes to. The ABLE account has a payback to Medicaid that says whatever's left in the ABLE account when that beneficiary dies, um, they, that's going to go back to Medicaid first to repay Medicaid. And so that's a difference in the special needs trust. Uh, so um, there's, you know, th those are some basic differences. There's some advantages maybe to special needs trust over uh, the uh, ABLE account. And uh, we can discuss those a little bit more if you want to. Um, that, you know, you I mentioned that you can put the bank, you can put any uh, special needs trust with any investment company or trustee. You can select the trustee. There's no limit on the contributions. ABLE is good, though, for small transactions, small inheritance, small a $20,000 lawsuit settlement. You're going to spend $5,000 on some stuff, put the other fifteen in an ABLE account, and then you stay on Medicaid. So small amounts, giving that person with a disability autonomy over their money, you know, giving them the ability to spend some money, put money in an ABLE account, give them the checkbook, see how they do. Where can you hear more about ABLE accounts? I'm going to tell you next. Iris, hang on, and we're going to get to your phone call. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. 
This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our programs, you can listen to the whole show. Inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Up next, it's our Tuesday Southern Remedies show, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress. It comes on at 11 a.m. MPB has really enjoyed Richard Courtney on as a guest on different shows. Rick talked about the ABLE accounts soon after they were enabled on Money Talks, the July 2nd. 2019 show if you'd like to hear that podcast and the Mississippi Secretary of State Michael Watson talked about them just a little bit when he was a guest on In Legal Terms on February 25th of 2020. You can find both uh, links to both of these shows on the In Legal Terms digital media information that I'll have for this show the msable.com website and we'll have that P-P-P-P, People, Place, Paper, and Professional, uh, an acronym, I guess, yeah, an acronym on our show. Also, we've got Richard Courtney with us today. We're talking about Special Needs Month and Special Needs Law Month and some of the laws and benefits that can help our friends. But let's take a call to from Iris, who's in Como. Iris, thank you so much for calling in to In Legal Terms. What's your comment or question? I have a question concerning a possible disability uh, in the future. I have a 23-year-old son who has been diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. And what that amounts to is at the age of 40, he's predicted to be blind. He, uh, at the age of 21, we found this out, and uh, he, has, he has tunnel vision, and the vision will gradually get worse, corresponding uh, that there are some future uh, possibilities of research, of course, before the age of 40. But my question is, is there anything we should do now at his age of 23 we can do uh, with disability or Social Security or just anything that we should be doing he, he, at the age of 21 he continued on into college at Ole Miss he had a, he had a scholarship but uh, he lost it because he failed everything that semester due to just he just wasn't able to handle it he's gone back to school now uh, but he has no scholarship so what can we do at this point uh, to to help him Iris and I love your name um this, I think it is important for you to try to get some diagnosis, some medical documentation of the extent of his blindness before age 22. And the reason I say that is because Social Security has some uh, coverage issues for people. For instance, they have what's called a childhood disability benefit. My daughter, Melanie, can, can benefit from this. That is where a child 
who was determined to be disabled, that means Social Security has to find the medical evidence that persuades them that this person was blind or disabled prior to age 22, if that child remains unmarried and dependent on the parents to some degree, when the parent starts drawing Social Security, disability, or retirement, the child, the adult disabled child is what they used to call it, would become eligible for a benefit of half of what you begin drawing. So because my daughter was, was determined disabled by Medicaid, she was already on Medicaid and SSI before 22, uh, if she's not married, doesn't marry, and she is disabled later, if, when I start drawing Social Security, let's say I, I get uh, 2400 a month Social Security when I start drawing, she would become eligible for 1200 a month under the Childhood Disability Benefit Program because she was disabled prior to age 22, and that has to be proven. And she's dis and she still has a disability as an adult. She's not married and still somewhat dependent. So that's why I say it would be important, I think, for you to get additional medical documentation that could bolster that uh, finding of blindness before age 22. Now, um, you know, the disability and blindness before age 26. We talked about the able account later. Uh, so, um, you know. Other than that, if at some point he becomes blind or disabled, he may be eligible for Medicaid or SSI on his own right at that point, but he would not possibly be eligible to draw a benefit off of your Social Security later under the Childhood Disability unless he had been found to be disabled prior to age 22. So it's a matter of medical evidence and uh, getting that determined by Social Security at some point. Because sometimes people have gone back and tried to get an adult child. They never filed for SSI or Social Security. And later they say, well, look, we really want this child on SSI or Social Security or SSI so that they can start drawing off of my Social Security when I file. Can we do that? If you can go back and retroactively put together the documentation that Social Security will accept, uh, then you can go back and, but you got to get that documentation in order of the disability. All right, we have okay. one more phone call. Uh, 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 Professor Gershon, can just we take one, one more call? Go, you go ahead. I was just going to say to Iris, also make sure that he gets the accommodations he's entitled to from the university or school that he's enrolled in. Sorry to interrupt, but I just want to make yeah. sure to say that. Oh, no, that, yeah, that, is, that is fabulous. You want to make sure that the university helps him to succeed as best he can. All right, mm -hmm. let's take uh, one last call. Let's go to Greg in Columbus. Greg, thanks for calling into In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. I'm not sure if you're addressing this, but I do have a question about disability handicap access. Is that something that you're addressing today? Uh, not so much as the planning, but what's your question? Uh, my question is, if someone has uh, some country cabins out in the uh, country that, that they rent or even has like a small country store, you know, I see all these handicap signs and everything like that. And I've heard uh, different stories about different attorneys suing out of state, you know, just to you know, enforce this rule. But what is the rule? What would a person have to have uh, if they have, let's say, six cabins that they rent out in the woods? 
Uh, would they have to have ramps on all of them or even have access to any of them? Would they have to have automatic door openers or even like a, you know, a country store that, you know, mom and dad own? I mean, how much would they have to invest? I'm not asking for the price, but do they have to have automatic doors and ramps and uh, anything that you could uh, basically tell me uh, on that subject would, uh, would be uh, appreciated? Thank you. I don't think so. I mean, there are lots of historical sites that aren't handicap accessible, and they're not required to, to uh, do that because of some, uh, it, it would totally change the character of the facility. And if these cabins aren't what are called public accommodations, that's Title II of the ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act. If there's a public accommodation like a hotel, yes, they have to be accessible for uh, people if they remodel or do anything like that. But um, I, I'm kind of thinking that private cabins in the woods aren't gonna have to have any particular handicap accessibility given to them. All right, thank you so much, Greg, for calling in. Iris, uh, you, you know, the more I think about it, Professor Gershon was spot on as a representative from Ole Miss. If you need, a conspe if your son needs special considerations to uh, finish his degree, please do check out with them. Professor Courtney's, I'm sorry, uh, Mr. Courtney's uh, book for lawyers uh, is also available on Amazon in addition to the American Bar Association's webpage. And his law firm's website, elderlawms.com, has a special needs planning guide for free. We'll have a link to that. We'll have a link to some of the other things that are on our website. As always, time just sails by. Thanks, guys. We appreciate. Uh, Mr. Courtney, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you, Liz. That's going to wrap us up for In Legal Terms today. We couldn't do our show without Michelle McAdoo and Jay White, but especially for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill, and we hope you'll join us every Tuesday for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.